passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting live and on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today is Sunday, July the 10th, 2022. And uh, I'm joined today by not, not, not one, but two co-hosts to help us get through the latest allegations that have been reported by the Wall Street Journal against Vince McMahon. Yes, John Laurinaitis is involved as well. Um, Chris Gullo, Hello. Hello, how's it going? We have a jam-packed show today, a lot to talk about. So, And the much-requested, in-demand, Jesse Collins joins us again. He's back. Yeah, I'm on one of those fancy part-time deals. I don't work every show. He's on the Lesnar contract. Now it seems maybe to not be the, the Reigns contract. <laughs> yeah, not, not the, maybe not the Brock contract. Maybe like a Randy Orton tra- contract, like no house shows, mm-hmm. a lot of holidays off. So after some two and a half years of avoiding COVID... It has finally struck me. Uh, so I don't know if my voice sounds different today, but uh, we'll, we'll, I, I might, might give out halfway through this, but uh, we'll make it through as much as we can. I think I'm, I'm doing much better than I was yesterday, so I think I'll survive. Um, you sound fine. We, uh, we showed uh, Brandon a $1,000 Undertaker cameo where he talked about how, you know, how important it was to work hurt and set an example for the boys in the back. So I, I think he's ready to go. Yes. What, what, what does Vince say? Uh, you can work sick just the same. You know, there's no such, no such thing as sick. You can always work sick, something like that. Um, so we're, uh, we're keeping in mind many of the Vince um, peeves. So where, where should we begin, Chris Gall? Well, before we start, uh, if anybody has any questions or comments or anything, you can do a super chat. Uh, just on the YouTube stream, you press a little dollar sign with your question. Put any amount that you think is fair for the question. We really appreciate every Super Chats we get. And if it's about the topic we're talking at the time, we'll answer around then. If it's not, we'll get to it towards the end of the show. Mm-hmm. All right. But, yes, we will talk about the big topic as we're mostly going to be uh, going through the newest reports from the Wall Street Journal on Vincent McMahon. Uh, and we will start with uh, some highlights from that Wall Street Journal article and we have here Vince McMahon. This is from the article. Vince McMahon, World Wrestling Entertainment Inc.'s longtime leader, agreed to pay more than $12 million over the past 16 years to suppress allegations for sexual misconduct and infidelity, an amount far larger than previously known. The payouts were, went to four women, all formerly affiliated with WWE, who signed agreements with Mr. McMahon that prohibit them from discussing potential legal claims against them on their relationships with the 76-year-old executive, According to people familiar with the deals, as well as documents reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. All right. So, Gull is going to do a lot of reading for us coming up here. We just reset the table for anybody who needs to know what the what the whole timeline of this is. 
arguably you could put this timeline going back to 1986 with Rhea Chatterton, uh, who, who will, will include her story in, in this too. But um, on March 30th of this year, the board of directors, that's WWE's board of directors, including independent members who are supposed to be the ones who are overseeing WWE executives, on March 30th, they received an anonymous email from a friend of a former paralegal uh, at WWE uh, that raised a number of issues. Uh, sometime in April, the board of directors began its investigation. Then on May 19th, Stephanie McMahon announced that she was taking a temporary leave of absence. She announced it on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And then a couple weeks later, on June 3rd, Business Insider reported that Stephanie McMahon was removed actually by Vince, although Fightful, The Observer, and others would later dispute uh, that, that part of the story. Uh, on June 12th, the board of directors received a copy of the settlement agreement between the former paralegal and Vince's lawyer, um, from Vince's lawyer. And then on June 15th, the Wall Street Journal actually made its first report. So this is the, the second uh, report from the Wall Street Journal on this subject, uh, the first one being on June 15th. Uh, so then on June 17th, two days after the first report, Stephanie was made interim CEO, interim chairwoman, is announced by W that Vince would retain his head of creative duties, and Vince appeared, of course, on SmackDown that night. Um, on June 27th, just a couple weeks ago, uh, maybe less than a couple weeks ago, New York Magazine published an article from Abe Reisman that interviewed Rita Chatterton and interviewed Mario Mancini, who says, Mario Mancini says that Rita Chatterton told uh, him about the allegations of, of sexual assault uh, that Rita Chatterton raises against Vince McMahon. She alleges that it took place uh, in a limo in 1986. Mario Mancini says Rita told him about that the next day, um, which is news. Uh, this is an allegation that was around in 1992, but Mario Mancini saying he can corroborate it in real time is news. And then on July 8th, uh, this past Friday, the Wall Street Journal put out its second report. Um, so there is that. I would expect, uh, as we talked about last episode, um, maybe HBO Real Sports to come out with something. Um, I understand there's a letter going around with uh, former WWE employees who uh, may be signing a letter to, to send to, to WWE and or the media. Uh, so that's what I've heard. Uh, I would expect... Maybe that will come out uh, in, the, in the relatively near future. So there's that. And then we have, courtesy of, of Mike Sempervivi on Twitter, sharing the actual physical hard copy of the Wall Street Journal yesterday, I believe, where the, the Vince story does make the lower half of the fold on, on the print edition of the Wall Street Journal. W leader paid women hush money. Uh, so there's that. And we will go through now what, what is a total of six six different allegations from six different women uh, against Vince. So, Chris Cattaro, take us through. All right. We will start. Uh, the previously unreported settlements include a 7.5 million pact with a former wrestler who alleged that Mr. McMahon coerced her into giving him oral sex and then demoted her and ultimately declined to renew her contract in 2005 after she resisted further sexual encounters according to people familiar with the matter. 
The wrestler and her attorney approached Mr. McMahon in 2018 and negotiated the payment in return for her silence, the people said. Okay, and then there's a contractor at WWE. In another previously unreported deal, a WWE contractor presented the company with a unsolicited nude photos of Mr. McMahon she reported receiving from him and alleged that he had sexually harassed her on the job, according to people familiar with the woman's 2008 non-disclosure agreement. Mr. McMahon agreed to pay her roughly a million dollars, these people said. And then a manager, this is my understanding, the Wall Street Journal does use the word manager. I don't think this refers to a wrestling manager, but uh, my read is that this is a corporate manager and employee. And in a 2006 agreement, a former manager who had worked 10 years for Mr. McMahon before allegedly initiated a sexual relationship with her was paid $1 million to keep quiet about it, according to people familiar with the deal. And then we have additional information about the paralegal, the former paralegal, uh, who's a, who is uh, part of the original story that the Wall Street Journal put out in June. All right. So, yeah, so the journal previously reported about a $3 million hush pact reached in January between Mr. McMahon and a former WWE paralegal with whom he allegedly had an affair citing documents with people familiar with the matter. WWE's board is investigating Mr. McMahon's agreement with the former paralegal and the 2018 deal with the former wrestler people familiar with the inquiry said. The board is also investigating allegations that WWE executive John Laurinaitis had a sexual relationship with the same former paralegal, according to people familiar with the inquiry. Additionally, the board is looking at 1.5 million non-disclosure agreement reached in 2012 with an employee involving misconduct claims against Mr. Laurinaitis, these people said. Mr. Laurinaitis, a former wrestler known as Johnny Ace, had been head of talent, WWE Talent Relations for eight years when he was forced to step down in 2012 and take a smaller role with the company. His demotion came around the same time as the $1.5 million deal with the employee who alleged she had an affair with Mr. Laurinaitis and that he demoted her after she broke it off. People familiar with the non-disclosure agreement said, The investigation by the board outside counsel at Samson, I'm sorry, Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett was triggered by a series of anonymous emails that directors received earlier this year, the journal reported. The emails reviewed by the journal describe Mr. McMahon's deal with the former paralegal and alleged that he and Mr. Laurinaitis took advantage of her. The former paralegal, to whom Mr. McMahon agreed to pay $3 million, was brought into the company as a legal assistant in 2019, according to people familiar with the matter. She never applied for the job, these people said, that said Mr. McMahon met her in Stanford, Connecticut condo building where both were living, the people said. The WWE placed her in the legal department because the woman's resume said she had attended law school, the people said. The woman often talked with colleagues in the department about her close relationship with Mr. McMahon, the people familiar with the matter said. Uh, the talk about Mr. McMahon was so frequent that her boss asked her to stop, saying she was making other employees uncomfortable, according to one of the people. In 2021, the woman transferred from the legal department to talent relations under Mr. Laurinaitis, who read return to the role that he held the decade earlier. WWE is WWE considered raising the woman's salary from annual salary from 100000 to around 300000 at Mr. McMahon's request. According to people familiar with the matter, the company settled on a base salary of 200000 and a director-level position. 
An anonymous email sent to the board on March 30th this year was viewed by the journal alleged that Mr. McMahon increased the woman's salary after he had began a sexual relationship with her. The email alleged that Mr. McMahon gave her like a toy to Mr. Laurinaitis. So there's all the facts that are new from the Wall Street Journal as far as those allegations go. Um, and then we have the, the story from Rita Chatterton uh, from New York Magazine. Uh, New York Magazine is referencing her her telling the story uh, on a Geraldo show in 1992. Vince continued to, you know, if you want a half a million dollar contract, you're going to have to satisfy me. And this is the way things have to go. She continued. Vince grabbed my hand, kept trying to put my hand on him. I was scared. At the end, my wrist was all purple, black and blue. Things just didn't. He just... God, he just didn't stop. This man just didn't stop. According to Chatterton on the show, Vince said, how's your daughter going to go to college? Of course, she doesn't have to go to college. As Chatterton put it then in the 1992 TV interview, I was forced into oral sex with Vincent Mann when I couldn't complete his desires. He got really angry, started ripping off my jeans, pulled me on top of him and told me again that if I wanted a half a million dollar contract, then I had to satisfy him. He could make me or break me, and if I didn't satisfy him, I was blackballed. That was it. I was done. Okay. And, uh, again, that, that's alleged to have happened in 1986. Uh, Rita Chatterton tells that story in 1992. And then we have in 2006, Vince McMahon, in, at his, uh, he has a home, or at least did have a home, in Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, and there's a, a tanning salon that apparently he frequented uh, where... This happened according to the Palm Beach Post. A booth attendant at a Boca tanning salon has told cops that she was groped by someone she identified as World Wrestling Entertainment boss Vince McMahon, according to two Boca Raton police sources. In a report expected to be made public this week, an attendant at Tanzabar on North Federal Highway claims that McMahon 60 came in for a routine tanning session late Sunday night, but things got a little weird. The alleged victim says Mr. McMahon first showed pictures of himself himself naked on his cell phone, said one source who saw the report. Then she says she he had made unwelcome advances and finally cornered her in a tanning booth and groped her. Calls left for Tanzibar owner Amy Murray were not returned, and attendant at the salon said she couldn't couldn't comment on the incident. Uh, McMahon, who starred in a world in a wrestling show. Uh, Monday night has been a longtime Boca resident. He lives with wife Linda at the Excelsior on South Ocean Boulevard. Apartments there fetch in the $6 million range. McMahon couldn't be reached, but at home in Boca, Linda called the allegations totally bizarre. His daughter Stephanie, also a star of wrestling specials, confirmed her dad does go to Tanzibar. Uh, yeah, he was there the other night. She said, I'm not aware of that something happened. The tanning attendant's name is being withheld until police investigate further and classify the nature of the alleged incident. Okay. And there was some additional reporting on that by the Daily Beast, uh, at least some years later, as well as by David Bixenspan for Deadspin. Um, that's the gist of it. Um, so there's all that. Um, WD on Friday did send out a internal message to staff letting them know the Wall Street Journal's publishing a second report and they just reiterated that we and our board of directors take these allegations seriously we've been cooperating fully with the investigation led, led by our board of directors and will continue to do so until its conclusion 
Please note, upon its conclusion, WWE leadership will make itself available to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. That's the end of the statement. Um, so, any any um, any thoughts? I guess uh, anybody has here up to this point. Uh, before we go further, I guess there, there do seem to be some similarities between the uh, the allegations, which may lend credibility to them. Yeah, well, I think with the with the NDAs, we know that these things more or less happened. The NDAs, in a way, are an admittance of these things having happened, as opposed to some of the other ones where, you know, where don't have NDAs and, and were longer ago in the past. So we might not be able to confirm them or we don't have as much evidence that they did, a, in fact, happen the same way that we have with the NDAs. But what it does is because both the two main ones to me that, you know, the Rita Chatterton story and the Tanning uh, Salon story have a lot of similarities to the information that we got from the NDA-related incidents. The Rita Chatterton story, the thing about, you know, Vince McMahon offered me, you know, you want a $500,000 contract, this is what you need to do. You compare that to the paralegal NDA where, you know, they bumped up the paralegal salary at Vince's request. Um, That's obviously two very similar situations and I think adds more credibility to to Chatterton's um, allegations. Uh, the tanning salon story, the, 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 the story that had, you know, wanting the, the tanning salon, uh, attendee to take nude photos of him. And then she went through her phone while going through McMahon's phone. Vince was showing her nude photos of him that were already on the phone. Um, that sounds very similar to the NDA where Vince sent, uh, nude photos to, to the person in question. So again, we have a, the NDA kind of somewhat confirming a pattern of behavior that adds more credibility to these allegations that we don't have NDAs about that. Maybe there's a little bit more uncertainty about how they happened or if they happened at all. And, and that to me is, is pretty troubling. If I was Vincent, it was pretty troubling if I was a, a WWE board of executor um, person, just because it does make it seem much more, these allegations that kind of had happened in the past and have kind of been dismissed from the public eye um, seem to have more credibility. The more information that comes out of this investigation um, over these NDAs. Sure. So someone asked me uh, after the story came out, you know, what, what I thought that uh, what I thought about it and sort of what, what, how Vince is going to react. And I think the history of the way Vince handles crisis or scandal is that he's going to ignore it and post through it uh, for as long as he can. Um, and I think that's what we've seen so far. You know, we've seen sort of these, these small appearances that seem to have no real purpose other than to put himself out there, whether it was on SmackDown or on Raw or on the, the Cena episode of Raw or uh, having uh, himself and Stephanie and Triple H and Pat McAfee appear on UFC. Um, and we have uh, this report from Fightful. Uh, that reports that when when Vince got to the back after that first SmackDown appearance, uh, this is this is what Fightful reports. One person told Fightful uh, they wish they'd spoken out sooner and said that McMahon's response would often go from no selling the whole thing to, to being defiant. They also said that after McMahon's pointless June 17th appearance that's on SmackDown, he returned to the gorilla position and shouted, fuck him, seemingly in response to the allegations that caused his in- instance, insistence to appear on television. Um, so there's that. Uh, Fightful also reports that uh, 
everyone that they spoke to continued to believe that John Laurinaitis was done with the company, but they believe that he has a golden parachute deal with WWE that will likely take care of him. Female talent told Fightful last year upon his promotion back into talent relations uh, that they, they were expressing frustration. One person, uh, one higher up, told Fightful, Johnny Ace's ninth life is about to be lost. Uh, w Talent have not been able to speak on the record about the allegations and reports, but have spoken with Fightful privately and express, expressed displeasure and extreme frustration with Vince McMahon's handling of it. So we have, according to Fightful, at least people that they're talking to, talent, not happy about this. So, and then, this is also Friday, later in the night Friday, Denise Salcedo reports uh, on Twitter that, quote, sources tell me that Vince McMahon's Netflix documentary has been pulled and is off the programming spreadsheet at Netflix. A source at Netflix confirmed it no longer being listed on their spreadsheet. Another source at Netflix said, quote, that shit's out of here, end quote. Uh, another source indicated that the project was already deep in post-production and that several talent interviews had been done months ago and that millions of dollars were spent. Uh, Denise spoke to one of the producers on the project. However, they declined to confirm nor deny this story to her. Uh, the, the documentary that we're talking about here is uh, the documentary that was first revealed to the public to be in development back in October 2020 on W's earnings call at that time. It would be a documentary, a four-part documentary on Netflix, executively produced by Bill Simmons. Uh, sounded like it was going to be a largely positive piece. Probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Probably, doesn't, probably isn't a very good look to put out a, a, a positive four-part piece on Vince McMahon without at least uh, dealing with these issues. Um, Sean Ross Sapp has also said that he's heard that W had the final approval of the, of the final edit of the documentary. Who could have foreseen a documentary about Vince McMahon, not a, a positive documentary about Vince McMahon uh, running into some trouble? Yes. Um, and then Dave uh, noting that uh, about SmackDown on this past Friday, just to know from SmackDown, business as usual. Everyone, especially Vince, acting like nothing has happened. So there is all that. And we can talk about all, all the usual stuff about how, how the power struggle may be unfolding in terms of Vince has controlling shares because of his special class B shares. Um, so I guess I, I think if someone asked me if, if terms between, you know, if the relationship between Vince and Stephanie is still good. Um, and and I, I, I said, that I think anything is possible. I, I think very little information leaks out of this, this family world. Um, and I, I tend to think that, that Vince and Stephanie are probably still on good terms. I see no reason to think otherwise. And you look at that she was at least willing to sit with him at UFC and, and, you know, have that sort of photo op. Um, that said, I, I don't know exactly what the relationship is between, I'm sure it's a complicated relationship between Paul Levesque and, and Vince McMahon, although he was in that, uh, in that row of seats too. I, th I think Nick Khan was there somewhere too, but he was not, in, uh, not in the frame. Uh, but he, he was, I think he was at that UFC event as well. Um, I think, uh, you know, you have to wonder where, where this information continues to come from for, from for the Wall Street Journal report. It may be coming from somebody who's on the board, and that would include uh, the executive members are Stephanie, Hunter, Paul Levesque, Nick Khan, uh, as well as all of the independent members. And we can put those members on the screen here. Uh, w Board of Directors is now one member short. Connor Shell announced his resignation from the board. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment. But I just wanted to add, too, that I, I, 
there there may be it, it is plausible to me. I think I've explained this on previous episodes, but it may be that there's different factions with different interests about W's future, especially as Vince ages here. There may be different people or executives who want W to stay a family business. Maybe Stephanie is included in that because I think she wants to to run this company, maybe be permanent CEO. Um, and there may be others who want to sell it. Uh, so that, that, that may be what's happening there, there. That may be contributing to the business insider report uh, that reports that, hey, no, Vince, Vince pushed her out um, to frame Stephanie as somebody who was pushed out because of performance in her job. Um, and then there's the, the view that, well, this is really all a Nick Khan uh, strategic plan to one by one, just like the tester might meme, to overcome Hunter, who fell from power in 2021, to overcome Stephanie, who announced her temporary leave of absence and whose performance was discredited in the Business, business Insider article in June. And now it's time to get Vince. Um, I'm not particularly persuaded by that, um, that theory. Uh, there may be some truth to it, but I, I, I don't, I honestly don't know what to make of that. Um, so what that. would, uh, again, I asked the question, what does Nick Khan get out of like muscling out Vince? I guess if this is just, just be my speculation, if he's able to sell this company and make it no longer viable as a family business, and he's, he gets to sell this huge asset for billions of dollars. That's a big deal for him, I guess. That's, again, I, I'm not a believer in this Nikon. is this mastermind strategy. Do you, do you think it would be- benefit his career? Okay, he pushes Vince out, does this big sale, which, okay, the idea with that would benefit his career because he just sold this massive company. Uh, do you think it would benefit his career as a top executive, having the reputation of the guy who... You Vince hired him, and then he, you know, manipulated it so Vince would be removed from the company. If I was, why would I, I want this shark in my swimming pool? If I was a big company, and I was a CEO, I was in charge, owner of a big company like Vince. If that's, if that's widely believed, that that's that's the issue. But right, so I just I think with the Nikon thing, I think people need to take a step back and think about what what is Nikon's job? It's to make Vince happy and make investors happy, and that's by making them money, and. uh a long-term strategy to remove Vince from power seems unlikely, unlikely to to help him in whatever his his ultimate goals are. I guess I, I just don't see like what his real end game would be. So now, what what power does this board actually have? As we know, the board is doing this investigation. They've hired an independent law firm to do the investigation. It it, it may be a legit investigation, but whether or not the board is actually going to remove uh, Vince, there's understandably some skepticism about. Um, there is a policy, there's the code of conduct, especially look at the July 2020 uh, edition to the code of conduct. They added this line in here about um, the grant or offer of employment quid pro quo for personal intimacy. Conspicuous that this section of the code of conduct was basically the same except for that one line that was added uh, July 2020. So, among other policies, perhaps, there's at least this policy that perhaps Vince has violated. Now, can the board actually fire him? But he's got all the controlling shares. He owns 80% of the votes. How can he actually be removed? Uh, if you look at Vince's employment agreement that was published in 
2010, and it was amended in, in 2018, but not meaningfully as far as this, this section goes. Uh, he can be terminated by the company, and I would read that to be he can be terminated by the board uh, for, among other things, uh, either for cause or without cause for violating uh, the company policy. Or part of this is uh, the executive's intentional perpetration or attempted perpetration of fraud. Maybe that would include you know, giving the former paralegal a raise. But nonetheless, I think there's it would be pretty easy to argue that he's violated some policies here. Um, he could be removed, I believe, by the board if the board was willing. If he, re- if he was removed by the board, I'm not sure what happens then. Maybe he could regain power by essentially appointing a new board in, at the following shareholders meeting. Shareholders meeting only happens every April. So I, maybe there would be, you know, he could be fired, let's say, in a couple months, and then come April, maybe he could return to power. I, I don't know. Uh, but I do think the board has the, the ability to, at least in the short term, remove him. Again, whether or not he could reestablish himself as, as the CEO is another question. Um, stock price on Friday. Uh, this story broke, was posted by the Wall Street Journal with a timestamp of 10.15 a.m. Eastern. Uh, the stock price at first did not respond to it. Uh, the indexes were basically flat throughout the day with some minor fluctuation. Uh, by by about 11 o'clock or so, the W stock does start to underperform the indexes. It was only down 1.8, 1.9% on the day, so that's not a huge loss. But the, the indexes were flat. So that, that does speak to, you know, it looks like this news did give investors uh, some encouragement to sell or something. This, this did result in a little bit of an effect, a little bit of an effect on the stock. Um, mainstream media. Yes, Jessica. Oh, no, just we have a couple super chats that were related to what we were just talking about. So go for um, it. All right. So. MJ, uh, thank you, MJ, for Super Chat. Uh, do you give any credence to the idea that hedge funds and Wall Street money is wrestling control away from Vince with the promise of taking care of whoever is helping? And I know the, uh, the MJ from NJ committee is working hard on research on this issue. Um, I am uh, trying to understand what's happening here. So w- w- one thing that I've been talking about with MJ is that there are, there's this convertible notes uh, financial instrument instrument that WWE put out. They basically allowed, and I don't know if I'll explain this correctly, but they, they basically allowed investors, uh, specifically institutional investors, to buy shares at a discount in, I believe, 2016? Or it might have been 2018. Anyway, they got to, to buy shares at a discount. Uh, this will expire in 2023, and it'll either convert to debt or uh, or they'll have to dilute their stock or something like that. Um, it's not totally clear to me what's happening there. But yeah, W will have to probably pay back. We'll probably have to use some of their cash flow uh, to to deal with that in 2023. Um, so we, we have, have we have another one from Nicholas Jervy. Thank you, Nicholas. Do you know of any Fortune 500 CEOs? surviving NDAs this extensive. And he said, glad to see the WrestleNomics performance that are developing new stars like Jesse. Yes. I don't. I mean, people have raised, um, this doesn't involve NDAs as far as I know, but people have raised uh, the Papa John story to me with um, whatever the Papa John CEO's name is, John something, right? Um, 
he's not somebody who had class B shares and had control of the company, I believe, though. So, so a different situation. Again, not, not involving NDAs, though. Um, in, my, in many companies, you know, and in, in other worlds, this would not fly, I think. Um, and this situation is unique, too, in that Vince just has control. And there aren't a lot. This would be, I guess, like Mark Zuckerberg or something. Although I think the mainstream media would, would destroy Mark Zuckerberg if he was behaving similarly. All right. I was going to say with these headlines, I was very surprised that the standard go-to headline for mainstream media outlets was, you know, Vince McMahon paid $12 million in exchange for silence or $12 million to keep women quiet, $12 million in, uh, you know, in in NDAs or whatever. Um, When I was reading the Wall Street Journal story, like when I read the headline, I'm like, all right, there's more, you know, there's more to this than just the paralegal story. The, the paragraphs that jump out to me and they jumped out to everybody because everyone was reacting to it in real time when it came out was that the $7.5 million to a former talent, an on-screen talent, somebody who fans would recognize if we knew their name and there's been plenty of speculation online about who those people potentially could be, that to me is like a way bigger story if I'm like selling, trying to sell this as an interesting story to the public than just the $12 million dollars. Um, so I kind of find that I found that like a little bit interesting. I, if I was writing the headline for this, I would have written that he had a relationship, you know, paid a $7.5 million NDA to an active talent or a form or former on-screen talent. Uh, to, to me, Vince is a billionaire. $12 million is like a lot of money, but it's not really that much money to him. And, you know, is there really that big a difference between $12 million and $4 million that we already knew about? The big scoop there was the, the oral sex with a, an, a at the time active wrestler with with promises of being pushed or after yeah, the fact was de pushed. Yeah. Um, that to me, and, and then you also have the nude photos story. That to me is like the big thing that I think the general public is really going to care about. And I was a little surprised to see the the, the mainstream media headlines kind of universally all be focused on just the twelve million dollars in four women. Yeah. Yeah. I think the big story, just just the big story, is sexual harassment and forced oral sex. Like that's that's really severe allegations, and in fact, there's no real true response by WWE. And honestly, monitoring social media, other than some diehard wrestling fans, there isn't this like public general backlash right now against that, which is to me ridiculous. Well, I definitely think I thought you know my my just as a fan. I thought before Friday that the original New York uh, Wall Street Journal story about the paralegal and, the, and that NDA, I thought that Vince had gotten away with it, basically. If you, I was going to like, it looks like they're going to ride this out. It's not going to be that big of an issue. This totally reinvigorated, I think, the public's interest in this issue, which is bad for Vince. Um, you know, the Rita Chatterton story, the New York Magazine story came out. It kind of came and went. Very little mainstream media picked up that story. Um, And then this story hit from the Wall Street Journal, and then all of a sudden we're back to where we were a few weeks ago, where basically every mainstream outlet possible is running something on this story. And it totally, I think, re-sparked public interest in what's going on here. And obviously the big question I think I and many people will have is what is next from the Wall Street Journal? Is there more information that's going to come out? It doesn't feel like that they're done. And if more information comes out, becomes public and then becomes more heat do we get 
like a, a, a recently active or an active talent on the record coming out and saying something. And that's just pure speculation on my behalf. I, I'm not going to say that I know anything like that is going to happen because I don't. But it does seem more likely the more the story is in the news. And that would, I think, be the finishing blow for Vince. Yeah, I, I think the power now is in the hands of, of the business, business partners. I think there's going to be some some more media attention. Maybe Wall Street Journal will will do another report. I haven't heard anything about that specifically. Uh, like I said earlier, I think HBO Real Sports with Brian Gumble is working on something. Maybe that will happen. Um, I I agree. And it was raised uh, on on the post wrestling news update on Friday with Bix that the it would it would be a a big difference if there there was an let's say an on on camera interview. <clears throat> With former uh, W talent who fans recognize, you know, telling a story, um, and uh, you know, if we we look back to that uh, that report on the uh, the former wrestler who who signed an NDA, uh, this person, the wrestler and her attorney approached Mr. McMahon in 2018 <laughs> and negotiated the payment in return for her silence. So this this incident happened in 2005, and then some. What what is that? Uh, 13 years later so 13 years later uh, there's an agreement um, it leads one to wonder what, what, what happened that, that led to that agreement being made 13 years later um, I think it's worth pointing out that uh, the Me Too movement and a lot of the, the stories that uh, were published uh, related to you know, sexual harassment and sexual assault uh, were happening then maybe there was a story that was being worked on uh, that that Vince didn't want out, and and he, he so he paid for it. Um, but yeah, I think the 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 power now is is with the business partners, which we'll we'll get to specifically. The, I just want to touch on Connor Shell, uh, who's one of the independent or was one of the independent members of the board of directors. W put out this eight K saying that on Wednesday. So an eight K is. Um, is a form that uh, reports any, anything that, that may be material news to investors, essentially. Uh, they put out this AK saying on July 6th, which is Wednesday, Connor Shell resigned from the board of directors for WWE, effective immediately. Mr. Shell resigned from the board due to an increased slate of responsibilities resulting from his new expanded role at the newly formed The North Road Company, a global multi-genre content studio. Mr. Shell's decision to resign... From the board was not due to any dispute or disagreement with the company, its management, or the board on any matter relating to the company's operations, policies, or practices. Just to reassure you. Um, so, what's really happening here? This is a excerpts. This is, these are excerpts from the Hollywood Reporter. That reports that the Churning Group uh, co-founder Peter Churning is rolling up three content studios into one new mega project backed by eight hundred million dollars in financing from two private firms. Uh, Churnin is launching the road, the North Road Company, a global multi-genre film and TV studio that will include ownership of Churnin Entertainment and Words and Pictures. That's Connor Shell's company. The venture launched by the former ESPN executive Connor Shell, which is backed by Churnin. Churnin will be Peter Churnin will be chairman and CEO of North Road, with leaders from the production companies overseeing different parts of its business. Uh, Jeno Topping will continue to serve as president of Turner Entertainment. Shell, in overseeing, in addition to overseeing words and pictures, will oversee non-scripted content at the North Road. So th- this is news from this week. So this is not old news. Uh, so th- this does 
give Connor Shell some plausible out here. Uh, I would not be surprised, though, if that's not the whole story. Uh, so there's that. But W's down one independent director, apparently. Um, as we mentioned, uh, what was it? What was this? Go Saturday? A week ago Saturday? We go Saturday. It was right after uh, Money in the Bank. Right. That's right. So UFC happens. Vince, Stephanie, Polovec, Pat McAfee, they walk down the street to this was at the T-Mobile Arena. Yes. Or was, and Money in the Bank was at the MGM Grand. Yes. They walk down the street to, to the UFC event. God, Vince, Vince probably watching UFC the first time in his life. And uh, they see the entrance of Israel Adesanya with his Undertaker entrance. Uh, anyway, the, this leads to light shed analyst Brandon Ross tweeting, so was was Vince McMahon, Stephanie McMahon, Triple H, and Nick Khan sitting cage side for UFC 276 a coincidence with Money in the Bank in, in Vegas? Cross promotion or more to it? Then the Adesanya walkout to take her. Thinking emoji. If WWE uh, comes for sale, Endeavor is certainly a logical buyer. Ari Emanuel can do some of what he did for UFC sponsorship, deal negotiations, etc. Plus synergies. Vince could feel confident. He will run the show after watching Dana post acquisition. Um, so Endeavor, if people don't know, is a talent agency that acquired UFC some years ago. Uh, Ari Emanuel is. Uh, wasn't there a show based on Ari Emanuel? Was one of those HBO shows? No. Uh, was uh, was he Ari Gold loosely based on him from Entourage? Okay. Yeah. There, there we go. I think that's where I was going. Yeah. Um, the, the argument that, that the Light Shed analysts have been making on their podcast is that, hey, look, and I, and I think there's a C, CNBC article t- to, this, to this line of, of argument, too, which probably quoted Rich Greenfield, that, hey, look, the, the sports rights fees market continues, you know, the, the value for sports rights fees continues to grow. So why wouldn't you want to, if you can, acquire a, a company, a league outright, to put a cap on that, so you don't have to continue to pay escalating TV rights fees. Um, UFC did it, or I'm, I'm sorry, Endeavor did it uh, with UFC. Um, even though Endeavor is not is not a media distributor, um, but uh, it would make a lot of sense if you can afford it to to acquire WWE uh, scandals notwithstanding. Um, so maybe. Maybe that's something that happens. I don't know if, if they're interested in it or if they can afford it right now or if they want to in light of these allegations. Um, what happens next, though? Uh, Todd Martin replied to me on Twitter to something that I was tweeting on Twitter about the, the consequences. What can actually happen here? As cynical wrestling fans are quick to say, well, it's, it's Vince. Nothing can happen to Vince. And, and Todd Martin uh, from The Torch pointed out, uh, he said, I'd frame the question like this. What are the chances two of the world's biggest media conglomerates, who's referring to NBC Universal and Fox, what are the chances two of the, big, the world's biggest media conglomerates are going to be cool with paying a billion dollars to a company run by a man who paid millions in hush money for alleged sexual coercion and harassment of his female uh, performers? Uh, when you frame it like that, things don't sound as, as hopeful and as safe for Vince. Uh, in his future. So, and then that's the, I mean, what's going to happen? Like, is does does Fox care? Does NBCU care? I guess there just needs to be more mainstream uh, coverage of this. Curious what you think, my, Jesse. My question for this would be, 
I agree that because WWE's, if WWE's business model was still primarily business to consumer, I don't think Vince would have anything to worry about. For because I ultimately think WWE fans, wrestling, enough wrestling fans won't care about these for them to stop paying to go to shows and stop paying to buy pay per views or, or whatever your or buying merchandise or whatever your your old business model is. But because they're business to business now, it does open up space for, I think, a higher standard of um, what's the right word I want to use? A higher standard of professionalism, a higher standard of, of ethics, because they no longer it's no longer a relationship between Vince and these fans who love him and who will bow down to him when he comes out on SmackDown. It is a relationship between Vince and these major media companies that are very brand conscious and will make difficult decisions. If they feel like, you know, their bigger picture or their um, public image is going to be tarnished by continuing to like th- do things like allow Vince McMahon to appear on television uh, after these allegations have come out. My question would be, and I guess nobody really knows this, but it does feel like kind of the elephant in the room when we talk about these kind of potential endgame scenarios for Vince. Is what does he care about more? Does he care about making all that money? Or does he care about having control over his company? Because if things head down this path where he becomes such a toxic personality that he is going to have to make that choice, which whether do you care about being the boss and being in control or do you care about your billions of dollars? And I would say he cares about the billions of dollars more, but I, I'm not sure about that. It's, you know, this is his life and will, how, how far is he willing to go um, to, to, to avoid stepping down? Was he willing to, you know, Get his television contract canceled. I think that sounds crazy to me, but Vince it does, might not be thinking rationally about it. I, I think he cares about control more than money. Um, the question is whether he's willing to destroy his legacy for the sake of keeping control for for you know the latter part of his life. Um, I, I think everything that I've that I think I've learned by by studying his product and his career is that you know making money is is fine. Making money is good, uh, but I, but he wants to maintain control and be the the manipulator. It's sort of like how there's the the three different kinds of promoters theory. There's a promoter who listens to the to the crowd. There's a promoter who doesn't listen to the crowd. But then there's the third best kind of promoter. It probably in Vince's view, I don't know if he this is something that he says, but I think this is something he would subscribe to. Then there's the third best kind of promoter who makes the crowd want what you want and i think that's what he wants and that and that's the the to- the whole tension between him and his audience has been about control about who's who's the one who's really manipulating this this show um when certainly in my view he could be making a lot more money uh, all of his consumer metrics could be higher if he wasn't so insistent on making people want what he wants Again, now, how willing is he to maintain that control? At what cost? Um, that is the question, and we have not seen we have not seen such a high cost uh, be be charged as as that which might end up being charged here. I I think the only thing that's going to do it is the sponsors and the TV partners, and that's why. Like, I mean, granted, this story only broke Friday. So, but, uh, you know, I'm interested to see if we do see some big general 
backlash on social media from people pushing, you know, tagging these sponsors and, and asking them, you know, are you going to do something about this with Vince McMahon staying as head of creative and still being involved and all that? Like, we haven't really seen a big, you know, for lack of better words, cancellation movement for this. So here, here, here's, I, I will, here's a, go, go ahead, Jesse. Oh, sorry. I just want to add that I think there is some significance to the Netflix documentary being pulled according to, you know, what Denise said, because how many times have we talked about Netflix or a streaming partner as a potential partner with WWE for, for maybe one day raw moves to Netflix or, or even next or, day or, rights, which are currently being negotiated. Correct. Yeah, correct. And so we do see at least some repercussions where Netflix is saying, look, we don't, we can't do this project because we don't want to be associated with something about this guy. And does that potentially sour Netflix over a longer term period of time from working with WWE? And that's a pretty big blow. You take, that's a big, that's a big person you're taking off the table. If you're, if you're a WWE, if you're WWE and that is, you know, in direct consequence, a direct consequence of these allegations and Vince being in the news for all the wrong reasons. So, as we just mentioned, the, uh, there's next day rights that we've been touching on here and there. I believe that, so the, we're talking about the Hulu rights in the United States for people who can watch Ross Smackdown, et cetera, the next day on Hulu. That deal, we believe, expires in December of this year. So, as we've been saying, could be any minute now when they announce a new deal. Um, and it's been hyped to me that there's a lot of people interested way more interest than there was the last time this deal was made, which makes sense because there's a lot more investment in, in streaming. Uh, maybe not just Hulu, but maybe Netflix is interested. Maybe Amazon is interested. Who knows? Uh, but as, as, as Jesse points out, if it's on Netflix's radar that they're going to need to, at a minimum, put this, this Vince documentary on hold, if not cancel it outright, then I'm sure Netflix is, is aware of, of, of what's happening here with Vince. Uh, does that, does that make somebody like an Amazon or somebody like a Hulu a little bit less aggressive about their bid for next day rights? More importantly, Chris Cole, when does WWE's Raw and SmackDown deal in the U S expire? That's 2024, right? Yes. Yes. You have a mug that, that, that will indicate that timeline. <laughs> Didn't even need to look at the mug. <laughs> Excellent. So when does that get negotiated? If it's, if it's expiring September 2024, when do, they, when do they negotiate or when do they usually announce a deal if past history is any indication? Be 2023, right? Or in. Right. I, I, I put it at about the spring of 2023, less than a year from now. And, and, and if this is continuing to be in, in, in the consciousness of, of the public or the consciousness of executives, I mean, what, what does that do to W's ability to, to negotiate favorable TV rights fees with NBC Universal, with Fox, with any other bidder? Um, w wants as many bidders interested in their property as, as possible. As we made the, the, you know, buying a house, selling a house analogy, your house is going to cost a lot more. It's going to sell for a lot more if you have more than one bidder. Um, if you have one bidder, you'll, you might get a good deal on your house. <laughs> But uh, does Disney want to be involved with, with Vince McMahon, who's got all these sexual misconduct allegations against him? I doubt it. Um, and not only that, but I think this, this, is, this causes trouble for acquisition of the company outright, too, if that's something that's on the table. And that's something that we've speculated would be on the table for NBC Universal, especially, right? If I'm NBC Universal, uh, the scandal notwithstanding, I would just want to buy WB. 
assuming that, you know, I, I think Brian Roberts, the CEO, uh, has some reservations about wanting to associate his brand with, that is the Comcast NBC Universal brand with WWE. Um, if those issues can be overcome, uh, it makes a lot of financial sense to just acquire WWE to not have to pay sports, sports rights fees that continue to escalate in this market. Um, however, to- do you want, do you want to, do you want to acquire this company that has this stain on it? And how will you run the company and navigate it a post-Vince version of the company? Because a post-Vince would have to happen whether Vince loses his power because of the scandals or not. Eventually he's going to die or become – or have a stroke or something where he's not going to be able to function as leader. And that I think is going to be a big challenge to who would ever inherit WWE is that you are now running a company that has been associated with one man for basically its entire modern existence and how do you navigate those those next steps? We've talked about how who's going to be running creative. How do you determine who would be a good person to run creative? How do you give that person the optimal amount of authority to kind of navigate the inherent like carny politicking background of pro wrestling? That would be a challenge. I think like the endeavor, the idea that Endeavor would buy um, WWE, right? We talked about this when I was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Like if NBCU or Comcast bought wwe what would that kind of be like for them have they ever run uh, a a, a, produ- a content production co- company the way that wwe is we talked about you know i think they own the philadelphia flyers but it would be kind of a new ground for them right it wouldn't really fit into the rest of their profile you look at I, endeavor I, I don't know i almost don't know what oh i guess endeavor is a good example go ahead keep going Jesse. right right endeavor endeavor makes logical sense if you just look at what kind of big company has purchased something like WWE before and been able to handle it correctly. And Endeavor is the obvious logical one. I don't know if Endeavor has that kind of money. And I would seriously wonder if Endeavor would be able to beat a bid from a company like Comcast um, if it were to become available. Yeah. Well, Endeavor is a publicly traded company, so we can look at what their balance sheet is, um, how much money they have on their balance sheet. Uh, as of this would be year end 2021, they had we are looking at this in millions. They had 1.8 billion dollars on their balance sheet. Um, I don't think that they would have to buy it outright in cash. I think that's you know, it's something that could be bought with some debt. But my my lay lay financial reading of this is that you know, they probably could. I think that's something that they could afford um, if they wanted to. If they wanted to finance that and find someone to finance it, um, I wouldn't rule it out. So there is all that. Now, John Cena was just on Raw. John Cena may or may not be on SummerSlam. I don't know. I think Fightful, well, yes, Fightful reported that Vince was on his way to go meet with John Cena in Vancouver where he's working on a movie. Um, does John Cena want to be associated with this? You know, John Cena didn't want to be associated with those, uh, those Saudi Arabia events anymore. Uh, he has... Some, some kind of standard. And I, I don't think he, he, I'm not sure if he believes that Taiwan is a country yet, but um, he didn't want to be in, involved in the, uh, the Saudi Arabia events after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Does Dwayne Johnson want to be involved in this? There's been some rumor and speculation that you know, maybe it'll be the rock versus Roman Reigns at the next WrestleMania. Uh, does this, if, if, if Dwayne Johnson is interested in that, does this make him less interested in that? These are questions. Um, not not anything that's going to destroy W's business, but it's it, it, if Cena and The Rock don't want to be involved in WWE, it, it it does 
gather some momentum around, you know, certain people not wanting want you to do business. Um, and, uh, it's worth noting what the, uh, the Snickers doctrine is in 2018, the Mars company, which owns Snickers, uh, they pushed WWE to remove Fabulous Moolah from, from the name of the Battle Royal uh, in 2018. So it is business partners, ultimately, that will drive this company to change. And driven I by see, mainstream media coverage of, of I, these. I, I see things. you did not include the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia on this uh, chart. Do you not think they'll be upset about this? I, I tend to think the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia will be among the last business partners to have issues with W's treatment of women. <laughs> but they do, they, they do account for 8% of, of W's revenue, by my estimate. Um, and to, to be clear, just how much W's two TV, two US TV partners uh, contribute to revenue, just Fox and NBC Universal alone account for more than half of W's revenue. So they, they much more than anybody else, and NBC more than Fox have should have tremendous influence over this company if they want something to change. Um, Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Yes. So there's all that. Um, WWE, I'm sorry. The Wall Street Journal points out this... Uh, this line from, from W's risk factors that, that W li- lists in each of its annual reports. Uh, the, the paragraph addressing it in the Wall Street Journal about how vital Vince McMahon is to this company. W describes Mr. McMahon as critical to the success of the company, which runs the world's most famous wrestling business and reported record $1.1 billion in revenue. Uh, w said in regulatory filings that losing Mr. McMahon would put its entire business at risk. I think this is a wildly overrated uh, risk factor that the, that media loves to eat up. I think Vince um, is is a detriment uh, to to W's business in many ways. On 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 the net, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what his corporate role really really involves, other than head of creative, and what he's really contributing in a positive manner. Um, I we do give him this that he's been a good corporate strategist in terms of recognizing the W network direct to consumer wasn't working out and they had to go another way and sell the licensing off to somebody like Peacock. Um, but it's not as if I don't get the sense that without Vince, that Nikon can't and people around him and other executives in the company can't handle the management of this company. Um, that said, I think he's been a tremendous detriment in, in his creative role. Um, I don't know that Bruce Pritchard would be better, but certainly Paul Heyman would be better. Paul Levesque would be better. Brandon, don't you think it's somewhat notable that as far as the public knows and what WWE has made public 
is Vince isn't currently running the business side of the company. Vince has stepped down from his position as CEO. He's in charge of creative, but he isn't currently in charge. And the stock price has barely moved. So the idea that investors, we, and we've, we saw this in the past, right, when Vince McMahon was killed on television or when Donald Trump bought raw the notion that Vince McMahon was no longer in charge which was enough to negatively impact the stock price even though it was clearly um a kayfabe related incident this is real life he's you know not running the company from what WWE has publicly said and the stock price hasn't gone down so that to me tells me that maybe that we're overblowing the idea that the the public thinks and the investors think that only Vince can do this job and only Vince can um make this happen uh, you know, the statement that's published here, okay, WWE describes Mr. McMahon as critical to the success of the company. I feel like you can swap out WWE and just put Vince McMahon in, in those statements. So Vince McMahon describes Vince McMahon as critical to the success of the company. And Vince McMahon said regular, in regulatory filings that losing Vince McMahon would put his entire business at risk. I think it sounds very um, insular. Vince trying to insulate himself by you know, saying like, look, I'm very important. So there's no way you can get rid of me, which comes in handy at times like this when people might want to get rid of him. Yeah. Yes. I think too, when the uh, Trump and the, the car blowing up and everything, there was one factor that wasn't there that's here now is Nick Khan. And he's had a pretty good track record over the last few years of increasing WWE's profitability. And I think that the investors at least see that, that he's the real one really kind of making a lot of the business decisions. I will say that I, I have the impression that investors are very impressed with Nick Khan. Yeah. Um, anything else to add on this? Do we have any super chats here, Golo, um, before we... Uh... Nothing on that. We just had a, a super chat in the beginning uh, from uh, uh, Ukra. Uh, Urka, I always say it wrong. Urka, just wishing and uh, hoping you get well soon. You're sounding better throughout the show. As the show goes on, Brent. My health is yes. improving Yes. as I talk here. That's good. Um, I've got one last thing. I don't know what we're going to move on to exactly next, but I just wanted to ask, kind of put out one thing there. Uh, Nick Khan, speaking of Nick Khan, good old, he's very media friendly, Nick Khan. He's, he's on all of these podcasts and he's doing all these interviews and he's, you know, on these, on CNN and he's talking, or CNNBC, and he's talking about all the great things WWE is doing and all this stuff like that. Um, when does Nick Khan start getting a little bit of public pressure put on himself for working in a company that, you know, according to these Wall Street Journal stories, has a pattern of sexual misconduct? And when does don't when do we start wondering about when this stuff is going to get cleaned up? It's not just Vince McMahon. It's John Laurinaitis. It's it's clearly distressing if you're I think hearing about this and being like, wow, WWE is this out of control organization where the executives are using their power to gain sexual favors from employees that work underneath them. I think you look at the Jamie Horowitz, you know, Nick Khan basically brings in Jamie Horowitz, right. um, To WWE to become their, you know, uh, executive vice president of development and digital, you know, Jamie Horowitz was fired from Fox in 2017 amid a sexual harassment probe. And so that's something that I look at and I say, okay, well, like, when does Nick Khan, who goes on, he's got so many friends in the media and he goes on all these podcasts and things like that. When does he start getting some, because I feel like he's gotten zero criticism throughout this entire thing. 
and it's Vince's fault and Vince is this, this terrible person and all this stuff like that. And all that is as well and good. But I do wonder when do we start asking, when does Nick Khan start getting asked some difficult questions about what you're doing in this company? You know, these people who are associated with the company are, are doing these things. You're bringing in people who have their own sexual misconduct allegations. What What's going on there? And I feel like he has gotten zero pushback from anybody on that. And I, I would have real questions about, um, you know, moving forward and be like, is this the guy, you know, everyone loves Nakan. He's so great. But this company seems to be like Animal House. And ultimately, as this, I don't know, he was officially a CEO uh, of the company. He is going to be responsible for a, a lot of that image issues. Yeah, I, I uh, usually around summer. So last year, SummerSlam, that's when Nikon did the interview with Harry Holani. He did interview. He did at least one interview that we talked about ahead of WrestleMania. He seems to do interviews ahead of the, the of major pay per views, right? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if there isn't a Nikon interview ahead of, of SummerSlam, which is at the end of this month. Um, yeah, I. I don't know what he could say other than their their public statement at this point is that there's an independent investigation and they take it very seriously. And Vince has said he'll, he'll accept the outcome, whatever it is, and they're investigating the, the workplace culture and, and, and things like that. Um, but that's a, that's a strong point about Jamie Horowitz. I remember when he was announced as being hired with WWE that, uh, you know, that he was uh, – he, he left – Fox Sports because of sexual harassment. Uh, seems like he might fit in great at WWE uh, <laughs> as we learn more about what WWE is like. And, and lastly, I, I, I should have said this earlier, the statement that WWE put out to talent about the most recent Wall Street Journal article and, um, you know, ta- WWE executives will be made to you, made available to you at the conclusion of this probe. Um, here, I'll read it. WWE describe. oh no, that's not it. Um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, here it is. We've been cooperating fully with the investigation led by our board of directors and will continue to do so until its conclusion. Please note that upon its conclusion, WWE leadership will make itself available to answer any questions you may have. If I'm a talent and I hear that, I'm not happy about it. And I think it's completely ridiculous to have that kind of policy. And could, Because who who are we talking about here? We're talking about Vince McMahon. We're not talking about... Um, some administrative executive who talent will never ever see and you know doesn't interact with on a regular basis. This is someone who talent is expect to work with every single week, who are expect to communicate with at every single television taping. And this message kind of gives off the impression that's work with this guy, pretend like nothing is happening, everything is normal, business as usual. Vince is no selling it, or Vince is coming through the curtain and say saying fuck him. But don't ask any questions about this. And, you know, when we're done with this probe, which God knows when that's going to be done and God knows how much more information we're going to come from that, then you can ask questions and then we can talk to you and trust us, you know, work on the up and up. And it's wrestling. People will 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 take that. will eat that shit sandwich and, and do it with a smile because this is their dream and they want to make it at WrestleMania and they want to continue to make big money in WWE. But as an employee, I would be extremely frustrated at this kind of public messaging. Yeah, especially for talent, this is the person who, who, by far more than anyone else, has the most control over your career and over what you do in the company. Yeah. That's part of the problem. It's part of the reason he's these NDAs exist is because he's in that position. And he has power over talent, and now talent's supposed to. I guess this message tells me that 
it's basically like don't wor- this what this message is is don't worry we're doing a good we're, we're investigating it but don't ask any questions right now and just wait till we're done with it and yeah. just keep doing your job and yeah, I, it, that that wouldn't fly it's once again making them powerless like no you can't do anything right now you can't ask any questions you can't bring it up can't talk about it we'll deal with it yes but if you have a problem with your push you can, you can stand outside vince's office so, uh, anything else to add here as we, uh, we will touch briefly on the, uh, New Japan story. If not, um, New Japan this past week had its, uh, business strategy meeting where we had, uh, the president, uh, Obari out here. Um, they had a number of slides, which I have attempted to, to translate. I, I translated some of them. They've given sort of a breakdown of their uh, wh- where their revenue comes from, including tickets and merch. They, they, they did do a, a breakdown here, as you can see, uh, business to consumer and business to business. So a lot more of New Japan's revenue by percentage is coming from consumers rather than business to business. That's largely driven by the fact that Japan is in an especially strong media rights region. Uh, and the U.S. very much is. Um, and for, for some reason, they, they put this slide out here showing the number of wrestlers who they have uh, broken down as all wrestlers and just Japanese wrestlers comparing 2012 to 2022. Uh, I guess showing that they just have more wrestlers across all ages. But uh, we have this summary from uh, Post Wrestling from Andrew Thompson on his report of, of the presentation uh, where New Japan says that they're going to uh, have wrestlers from stardom compete uh, for New Japan in the USA, New Japan USA shows moving forward. Um, New Japan is returning to the United Kingdom in October. Vocal crowd noise. This is maybe the biggest news story that people are uh, paying attention to. Vocal crowd noise is going to be allowed on September 5th and 6th at Korakuen Hall events. Uh, so, so not at all events, uh, but only at Korakuen Hall events. And those events are going to be at limited capacity while allowing that uh the vocal crowd noise so very unclear to me when and i understand that's part of a government restriction that they have to comply with in japan but very unclear to me when almost if if ever there will be a vocal crowd noise uh, allowed widely in japan again um for the new japan and stardom show on november 20th there'll be two mixed tag matches taking place on the card president takami obari comments on New Japan's strong year, and he highlighted the Forbidden Door show in Chicago, the Washington, D.C. capital collision. He said that the one thing New Japan has been able to do that other companies have not is build a consistent sub-brand, like Strong, that has allowed them to tour in the U.S. and Japan at the same time. Uh, New Japan hopes to change the entry process for talents coming into the company. He says this new regime will be implemented this year and will allow for talents to come into the company and more smoothly uh, after college, I did, I did read a transcription of Takaki Kadani, who is the Bushi Road president, um, the parent company's president. I read his his comments where he talks about sort of the young line process and how maybe we don't need to make everybody shave their head and wear plain black trunks and boots for as long. And maybe we can have people start to show character earlier in their career. Whereas usually it it takes until until they come back from excursion before they're, you know, before they're uh, showing any kind of character or gimmick uh, or, you know, different attire. I'm not sure how I feel about that (laughs) as a traditionalist for Japanese wrestling. Um, 
stardom wrestlers will be featured on New Japan of America going forward. So I, I expect that that means there's going to be New Japan strong shows that include stardom talent. Uh, New Japan will be returning to the United Kingdom in, in October and plans to leverage their New Zealand dojo by running more events in Oceania. Uh, in 2019, 96,000 people watched G1 Climax events. I believe that means in person. That fell to 36,000 and then 28,000 during the pandemic. 2022 ticket sales, though, for the G1 have surpassed 30,000, and the target is for total attendance of 50,000. Um, so because they want to run these G1 events at with the most capacity possible, with the highest ticket sales possible, you know, we're going to have uh, clap, clap crowds throughout the G1 because you have to sacrifice some capacity if you have vocal noise. Uh, at their August 16th and 17th shows, seats will be divided by factions so that fans can cheer their favorite groups. Um, there is going to be an outdoor show uh, on, on January 20th in Rapungi Hills as part of TV Asahi's Summer Station event. New Japan and Stardom on November 20th, Obari says we'll have around two mixed tag matches. Uh, men will wrestle men and women will wrestle women. So no intergender wrestling here. Uh, Obari expressed interest in developing NFTs uh, and the shows, yes, the shows on September 5th and 6th at Korakuen Hall will allow it will have a vocal crowd noise section. So so not even like a full full crowd uh, that will do vocal crowd noise, but a vocal crowd noise section. So and any any thoughts on the New Japan business strategy presentation? Well, as you mentioned, the crowds being uh, half capacity for the the vocal noise shows. Um, if you go back to the previous chart, you know, you look at where it shows where their revenue is coming from. You can see how much of their revenue is coming from tickets as opposed to everything else that they have. And so for a Japanese company, if it's going to come down to half capacity with vocal crowds versus full capacity or close to full capacity and clap crowds, they're always going to choose the clap crowd, half uh, the full capacity with clap crowds because that's where their revenue is coming from. Maybe if their revenue was more of a, like an American product where most of their revenue is coming from the quality of the television show and the popularity of the television show, they would say, we don't need, we'll, we'll go half capacity with vocal crowds because that is a much more compelling product to watch as a fan uh, sitting at home. And so I do think that's a big difference between wrestling in Japan and wrestling in other country in wrestling in the United States. Um, from the presentation standpoint, I know some smaller Japanese groups have done vocal crowds without necessarily saying they're going to be half capacity shows. But a lot of those are going to be promotions that are not going to draw more than half of a full house at a place like Kurokan Hall. I think Tokyo Joshi Pro has done a few uh, Kurokan Hall shows or they're planning to do some soon with um, vocal crowds. But because they're small enough, it doesn't really matter because they're not going to hit the, the capacity where it become a problem to have vocal crowds. And I think that's, I think for a lot of Western fans, that's what, that's the big holdup for new Japan and other Japanese promotions is, is the full, is the crowd reaction. It doesn't seem things have moved very slow over there. It doesn't seem like things are getting, going to get much better uh, moving forward. And the, the question I would have is like, under what conditions would full crowd vocal noise be allowed again? Um, I, I think Japan's. I mean, I, I know, like throughout the pandemic, the, the case case rates has been much lower, and the death rate has been much lower in Japan than in the U.S. So it's two very different approaches to uh, to dealing with the pandemic here, as I deal with it personally today. 
Were you at wrestling shows that people were making noise at? I was. That's it. Right there. You went to a show where people were allowed to yell and look what happened I, to you. I, I, I think I had exposure from uh, I had exposure from someone in my home though. So anything else? I think we have uh do you wanna do you wanna talk about our experience at uh, Rochester? Yeah, you and I uh by the way, I, I have tested negative because uh, I know once you test a positive, you let me know. I've tested negative. But, uh, yeah, you and I went to uh, AEW Dynamite and Rampage and uh, Dark Elevation uh, all together in Rochester on Wednesday. And it was, a, you know, an interesting experience. For us, it's about, let's say, an hour, hour and a half drive, depending on where you're coming from, from the Buffalo area. But they did announce that they would be running Buffalo on Wednesday, September 7th, which is a uh, larger arena than uh, the Rochester Arena, which is the minor league affiliate for hockey for the Sabres. So that kind of shows you. Key Bank Center is where WWE runs. They run Raw there. They yeah. run pay-per-views there. That's that's an NHL arena. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we kind of talked about how, like, it's AEW kind of shows how wrestling has changed, where it's high-paced matchup after high-paced matchup after high-paced matchup. It, there's no... St- slowing of the crowd or the old viscera spot that they used to say and all that like it definitely keeps the action going for the fan yeah i i think uh this was a pretty long show i was pretty tired by the end of it uh the the crowd was mostly still there for the rampage taping i would say you know 85 90 percent of the crowd that was there for Dynamite, was there for Rampage. Uh, the crowd was noticeably less enthusiastic for Rampage than they were for Dynamite. Um, the, the match with uh, Lee Moriarty and Jonathan Gresham versus the Gates of Agony. Yeah, Gates of Agony, yeah. Uh, I, I just think that the audience wasn't as familiar with, with those wrestlers, so the crowd was pretty dead for that. Um, but... Uh, it was. It was. Uh, I thought it was a pretty good show. The crowd was super hot for the um, the Wardlow match. Um, the Eddie Kingston was very over. The Eddie Kingston and Takashita match was excellent. Um, but yes, I, I, I am. I'm in favor of legislation being passed to limit all wrestling shows to three hours or less. Though I would be in favor of that. Um, yes. One thing I have. Guys, no, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask: Have you guys been to? Was this the first? What AEW shows have you guys been to before? Was this the first one? I've not been to any. This is my second. I was at Rampage last time they were uh, in Rochester. Uh, <laughs> one thing I noticed compared to I, I was at Dirty Raw in April, so I can kind of compare the two as far as cr- the crowds. Uh, much more kids and younger fans in a WWE crowd. That that's for sure. Uh, there was a lot of that. That eighteen to thirty four gram uh, demographic was here at this AEW show, uh, probably more than WWE. So, uh, but also. I've noticed that for a WWE show, you know, we talk about the casual fan. Like, when they tape main event, it's maybe half full. And then you have people there for Raw. But when they have the dark main event, most of the crowd's gone. This crowd for Dark Elevation was mostly was mostly full. <laughs> like, they were there for everything from start to finish. And that was a different behavior than I've seen at a WWE show. And, and Tony Khan greeted the crowd not once, no. but twice. Yep. And he came out when they were showing the rampage video to pump up the crowd too. Yes. That's something that you do not get on television is the no unique Tony Khan cheerleading experience with the live crowd. Um, I I'm always the, almost the biggest gap to me between WWE and AEW is the crowd involvement. 
and how invested your typical AEW crowd is in just any random match that's happening and the various personalities. It seems like WWE has trained their fan base to only react at certain moments. And that's when someone makes their entrance, when one of a handful of big stars comes out and does something or when a title changes and occasionally you'll see like a match like the Usos and the street profits from um, this past weekend where the fans get really into the match because the work is really good and the match is exciting, but just in AEW it seems to hit that so more often. And it's, it just, it's more fun. The fans sing during the entrance, the various entrance musics. It's just to me, if I were to take a non-fan to a show, I'd greatly prefer the AEW live experience over uh, certainly a raw or SmackDown taping. I, I hope to get to a W show uh, sometime in the future when I don't have COVID, uh, and 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 compare and contrast. Um, yeah. Any any other thoughts from the from the show, Golo? Um, no, no, not really. You know, uh, I I did find something interesting for me uh, is when I went in Rochester back in November, I think it was uh, October November. The dark tapings, the the enhancement talent, the, the you know the local independent talent or independent talent from the Northeast, got much more bigger ovations. They were kind of like pumped up a little bit more. Colin Delaney was very over in Rochester. Yes, yeah, uh, but uh, it, it didn't seem like that enthusiasm was wasn't there for for uh, those talents uh, this time around, uh, as far as being announced and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay Freddie, we want to congratulate Jay Freddie on his uh, initiation into the American Top Team organization. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's all. I think that's all we have for this week. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in and listening. Thanks to Jesse for joining us. Can I uh, ask you one? Can I ask you one thing, Brandon? Yeah, please uh, do. I, I should I probably should have said this earlier. Um, what do you, do you what do you think about the Ring of Honor show in Lowell in running a, ven- a venue of that size for Ring of Honor and kind of like the prospects of that show? Seems to be doing okay for ticket sales, right? I it has I twenty one. It went ticket sales went on Friday, and the last number I saw from Russell Ticks was a little over twenty one hundred. Death before dishonor. Twenty one forty three. Is that what you just said? Yeah, yeah. And that he's listing capacity as thirty three fifty, um, and we are almost you know just under two weeks out. Um, sure. I mean that seems like an appropriate size venue. Oh, I think it. I mean, so the, the the venue that they're running is about the same size as the Aganis Arena, which is what AEW Dynamite has run when they're in Boston and has sold out, and to the degree that they're actually running a bigger venue in Worcester in a few in a few weeks. But um, are you going? To I thought it was pretty death before dishonor. Yes, um, I thought it was pretty. What, what, I'm sorry. What'd you ask? Are you going to death before dishonor? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought it was pretty ambitious because Ring of Honor historically has run their Boston area venue has been the Lowell Memorial Auditorium, which seats, I think, about 1,800 to 2,000 people, um, which is a, a, by name also in Lowell. And uh, I thought this was a, a pretty big step up because this is a building that could ultimately seat probably, I would say, like 5,000 people for wrestling, maybe more. Um, and so I thought it was pretty ambitious to do this uh you know, with your Ring of Honor product, because I think 5,000 would be a good crowd about like a little bit, you know, about an average dynamite and maybe a little bit under it because some of the bigger shows skewer it. But I was, I thought it was pretty ambitious. I think their ticket sales are off to a good start, but. Is, um, is, is Rampage turning into a Ring of Honor show? It's the question on everyone's mind. Did we watch a Ring of Honor show at, at 10 o'clock on, on Wednesday? 
it was very Ring of Honor influenced, in my opinion. Well, is it? You know, it's the thing is, is so they they mixed the talent. It's kind of unclear on certain talents who are they Ring of Honor talent? Are there an AEW talent? Is what is Jay Lethal? Is he an AEW talent or is he a Ring of Honor talent? He's you know Ring of Honor doesn't have TV right now, but every single program and every time he's on television, he's talking about Ring of Honor. I believe that um, they're all signed to the same contract. I don't believe that there are different contracts. Right. Um, so I think it's you know we don't really know that much until Ring of Honor and if they're able to, and I'm sure Tony is working on it. They're able to get some sort of weekly television concept down with Ring of Honor. And where would that be? That where, where is a Ring of Honor TV show going to be distributed? It's going to be on from 10 to 11 p.m. on TBS. TBS. Yeah. I, that's just in a guess. I mean, you could it could go it could go anywhere really, if depending on what your ambitions are for it. It could be on a much smaller network, but I would see I would envision um, a suitable spot for it would be right after Dynamite. I assume that would do significantly better than whatever you know the movie that they show after Dynamite or or, or, or something like that. What do you think? Would it do better than the 11 o'clock replay of the movie? Um, I don't know. Um, I, I have trouble seeing it going anywhere where people might imagine it end, ending up on, on TNT or TBS. Does TNT or TBS want to add on another wrestling program that's definitely going to deliver lower lower viewership and lower in the demo? Um, I have trouble seeing where, where Ring of Honor can be distributed to in terms of a media platform that's that's going to pay something or probably not pay something for it but at least give it the reach that uh that tony Khan would like for it um if nothing else i believe AEW's working on a fast service or at least a fast channel um what's fast stand for free ad supported television there you go uh i, I you know I, I believe that's something that they're working on um for like pluto or something something like that yeah you but you're under the belief it would be like their own, right? Like just their own, and it wouldn't be on one of those fast things. That that's the question. I don't know. Um, so no, sorry, Jesse. What were no, you saying? that's fine. I was just going to ask about like YouTube. Like this is kind of a separate question, but I was thinking about: Do you think there's an, this is to, somewhat unrelated, but potentially a future thing for Ring of Honor? Do you think there's value in shows like AEW Dark and Dark Elevation being YouTube exclusive because they're available to people who maybe otherwise would not be able to or not regularly watching AEW's product? Do you think that – I don't believe – so let's say an episode of uh, AEW Dark does 200,000 views. I don't believe that 20 – yeah, I don't believe that 20% of Dynamite's viewing audience is also watching AEW Dark. I believe there are people out there that no, are – It's a global number. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I believe there are people out there that are consuming AEW's product or sampling the product through AEW Dark more so than they are an episode of Dynamite or Rampage solely because it's more accessible than those sh- those shows. And do you think that that has any real value to the company as being able to a place to market to, in a way into maybe certain countries that maybe you don't have like really relevant television contracts in or cable is not readily available in, and do you think that would almost in some ways help Ring of Honor, if Ring of Honor were to do something, maybe not produce the whole thing, but we're able to do a series of programs on YouTube. There's there's some value in YouTube in having an arm of your company being kind of YouTube exclusive because YouTube has almost unlimited reach across the globe. 
I, I have a feeling my phone is blowing up with, with responses to, to, to this conversation. But I think, I think the YouTube shows have value in a number of different ways for them. Somewhat in, in terms of the reach, in terms of you're reaching people who don't have access to Dynamite through Linear. And that's part, part of the argument why I've argued that I think Rampage would be a good fit for a streaming platform in the next round. Um, but I think there, there's some value. And there, obviously there's value in developing talent and giving people reps. Um, it, it was, I, I was given the impression that there's some value to in producing this content and sort of making TV partners wonder why they're not getting that content. And maybe that encourages them to, to, you know, to get Rampage on the air or something like that. I'm probably getting this all wrong. But um, I think there's some value in it. So your question is, well, does it just make sense to make Ring of Honor a YouTube show? Is that, that basically your question? I don't think – I think in, in, if, if for AEW, the best thing for AEW would be to – or for the best thing for Tony Khan would be to have Ring of Honor on a relevant cable channel. But I'm saying, would there be specific value you could find if it, you know, if that's something we're not to materialize and the choices are weekly television on, I don't know, access TV or, or a smaller cable station versus just being a YouTube show? Um, what kind of silver lining would you be able to find up being on a YouTube show? I don't know. I think there might be, maybe it's, it could be the case that the monetization is better if you're just going to put it on a fast streaming service too mm-hmm. but i don't know i don't know what what the best way is to monetize it. it it will ultimately be a question of not just how can i make the most money by distributing this content but also how can i get the, the greatest reach those are two values that i that are considered together i think in, in any media deal not just how much money you're gonna pay me for it but how how many people am i gonna reach which is gonna help the rest of my business um so yeah Anything else to add this week? No, I'm good. Gola, what plugs do you have? Are you uh, are you gonna uh, upset a a, a a subset of uh, of the wrestling community with your historical perspective on on a, uh, uh, an independent wrestling company? Yeah, we haven't uh, been able to record the last part of the Burr Prentice. Uh, my colleague is uh, he's a producer for a GCW and other companies, so he's been super busy. Uh, he's known as the Kevin Dunn of the Indies, John. Yeah, um, but uh, we're ho- we're hoping to record this week and, fi- and finally get an episode episode out, and then got some uh, ideas for topics uh, in the next few uh, next few months. Uh, maybe a, a piece about Reckless Youth, uh, which uh, you know uh, one of the the indie darlings that maybe should have been a much bigger star, and uh, uh, talk about some other possible you know fly by night indie companies that came here and there. And also too, I kind of want to do a uh, piece on Dragon Gate USA. I think that'd be a very fascinating story as well. So we'll stay tuned to listen to those uh, podcasts and RTI pod and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So. And Jesse, what plugs do you have? Yeah. People can follow me on Twitter at Jesse Collings. They'll be able to keep up with all of my various media endeavors. Um, mostly writing now for voices of wrestling.com. Um, podcast, Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, 
which you can find on YouTube. We just did an episode on Friday. Uh, me and my co-host, uh, Jason Unpresser of uh, WrestleNomics affiliated Jason Unpresser. Um, we talked a lot about social media and kind of the impact that social media has had on wrestling. And uh, I think it was a really good episode. Um, and Jason made a lot of really interesting points to think about chasing, you know, the idea of the social media influencer kind of changing and the idea of uh, it's almost like a white rabbit that these wrestlers are chasing and kind of going to like the realities of who has actually been successful using social media to help their wrestling career and the main takeaway being that once you hit a certain level of fame, social media becomes a much bigger detriment than it becomes an asset. Um, so you can re- listen to that um, gentlemen's wrestling podcast on YouTube. Um, and just, like I said, my Twitter accounts, the best way to, to keep in touch with, with anything I'm doing uh, media wise. Okay. Um, there's, there's always WrestleNomics on Patreon, patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. You get access to my TV ratings reports that come out nearly every day. Quarter hours when available, you get access to the WrestleNomics viewership spreadsheet with all my TV ratings data in it. Uh, you get slides to all podcasts, including this one. Oh, we got to do a who's a draw and a company popularity update this month. I was saying if you want to do that this Wednesday, if you're feeling good, but at least for who's a draw, but we'll talk, we'll talk offline. Yeah. Uh, and you get access to all the pro wrestling industry reports that I've done for the years of 2019, 2020 and 2021. And you never know what else I'll post on there as well. Again, at patreoncom slash WrestleNomics. Uh, thanks as always to our friends at post wrestling for helping us distribute WrestleNomics radio. Uh, Chris Gull read us out. All right, so we want to thank our WrestleNomics contributors, Jason Uprinser uh, and Chris Ely, uh, also technical consultant Phil Chertok. It's close. I'll get it. A special thanks, John. Unpresser. Unpresser. There we go. Jason Unpresser. Chris Ely, also our technical consultant Phil Chertok. Oh, I know. Uh, We've talked about it on Twitter. A special thanks to John Pollock, Wei Ting, uh, Corey Gibson, Show Buzz Daily, and Russell Tix. Uh, WrestleNomics was created by Chris Harrington distributing cooperation with post wrestling and supported by listeners and viewers like you. Okay. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly. When you place your first wager at bet MGM, simply download the bet MGM app and sign up using code champion one fifty. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.